<clears throat> All right, last week, of course, we weren't in the book of Hebrews, even though we've been going through the book of Hebrews because it was Resurrection Sunday, and we did our topical study on, on the resurrection. But two weeks ago, uh, we began chapter 10, <clears throat> and we made it through the first 18 verses of this chapter, and we came to the conclusion of this discussion on the superiority of the high priest ministry of Jesus. We've been talking about that point for quite some time as we picked up that discussion really in chapter 7 and it continues on through the end of chapter 10. And, and, and this conclusion now that we read here ends with the point that Jesus as our superior high priest not only offered up a better sacrifice for our sins, but he offered up a sacrifice of himself by his own death on the cross by which is the better sacrifice, better than any of the sacrifices that had ever come before within the Mosaic system, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant that we read about. And in this chapter, we began to look at the main reasons that were given for why the New Covenant sacrifice of Jesus' body is superior to and better than the Old Covenant sacrifices that the Levite priests made. And we, we looked at the first two in the first 18 verses, and they were this. The first is that Jesus' blood has the ability to take away our sin, and that was compared to the blood of the sacrifices that were made with the Old Covenant through the Mosaic system. And that, that was proclaimed or handed down by God to Moses there on Mount Sinai. And what we know is that the blood of the animals could never take away sin. They were only a temporary covering for what was coming. The ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made where our sins would ultimately be removed once and forever by our faith in him and what he has done for us. And we know, as we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, that, that in doing so, the Bible describes our sin as being cast as far as from the east as from the west, to be remembered no more, cast into a sea of forgetfulness. And then God no longer holds that debt, that, that judgment against us, because that wrath and that judgment has been placed upon Jesus on the cross through the sacrifice that he's made. It's been completely removed. Jesus' blood has the ability to take away our sin for those who put their faith in him. And then, the second point that we looked at was how Jesus' sacrifice did not need to be repeated. Jesus' sacrifice does not need to be repeated. And this was also different than the old Mosaic system. Because as verse 12, if you want to look here in the first 18 verses, verse 12 states that Jesus offered one sacrifice for sin forever, and by his offering he has perfected forever us who are being sanctified. And Jesus provided, we read here, a remission of our sins. And what that simply means is that by his offering, right, through the sacrifice that he made, he paid the debt that was attached to our sin. And we know that the wages or the debt of sin is death. God proclaimed that from the very beginning when he spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and, and he paid the debt attached to our sin, the sin of death, and set us free from what we owed that debt of death. And these are things that no amount of sacrifice can offer. No amount of animal sacrifice could ever do, could never accomplish these things. But as we read on and as we talked about a couple weeks ago, there are three main points that are being made. And, the, and there is still one very important point to be made here in verses 19 through um, 39, the end of the chapter, as a reason for why. Okay, the third reason for why <coughs> 
um, Jesus' new covenant sacrifice is superior. It's better. And it's the fact that Jesus' sacrifice opens up the way for us to God. It opens up the door for us to have access to the creator of the universe. Jesus' sacrifice. But also in these verses, as we look at the end of them here at this chapter, there's, there's practical application for us, which is always so important. In other words, <clears throat> we're told what we need to do with the information that we've received, that we've just read and studied through in Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. And it's one thing to have knowledge. But we want wisdom. And wisdom and knowledge are not the same things. Very, very, a lot of people who have knowledge but have no wisdom at all. They don't, they don't know how to take the knowledge and to rightly apply it to their lives. That's the biblical definition of wisdom, knowledge rightly applied. And so with this knowledge that we're given about the superiority of the high priest ministry of Jesus, we want to translate that into how does it apply. We want it to have wisdom into our lives. And you'll notice as we read through the rest of this chapter that the application that we'll be looking at comes in the form of three things. It comes as an invitation, it comes as an exhortation, as encouragement, and it also comes in the form of a warning. These points of application where we can glean wisdom, the what to do with what we've been taught. So with that, verse 19, if you look, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, all of these things being made known to us, he says in verse 22, Let us, let us therefore draw near with a true heart, and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, verse 23, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who's promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much so, and so much the more as you, as we see the day approaching. Of course, the day there is referring to the day of the Lord, the coming, the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, once again, as we look back to verse 19, we see that there's a transition being made between verses 18 and verses 19, and it is done so by this word, therefore. Therefore. By this, we see that the third, hear this, the third and final reason <clears throat> given for why Jesus' new covenant sacrifice is better than any of the old covenant sacrifices is really the result of the first two reasons that were previously given to us in verses 1 through 18 that I already kind of highlighted. In other words, because Jesus' blood has the ability to take away our sins, and because Jesus' sacrifice does not have to be repeated every time we sin, and because there has been a removal of the sin debt that we owed, the way, because of these things, the way to God has been opened up for us. That's a truly awesome, amazing thing that you and I, sinful men and women, can have access to a perfect and holy God. That we can come boldly, it says here. 
And the fact of the matter, if we think about this in contrast to the Old Covenant and the way that things were operated under that Old Covenant versus how things are now operated under this New Covenant that we have a covenant of grace that we enter into through our faith in Jesus Christ, when we consider that, the fact of the matter, hear this, is that no person... Any person who operated under the Old Covenant, whether you were a priest, the high priest, or just one of the Hebrew people who would come to offer up sacrifices there in the temple, no person who operated under the Old Covenant would ever have been bold enough, as this language here is given to us, in that way to try and enter into the presence of God by going through that veil of separation there in the tabernacle that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies. No one would have even dared. Considering that the holy place is where God's presence was manifested. And this place was such an exclusive place. It was, it was exclusive to the high priest only. And we know that he was only allowed to enter into this holy place one day of year. And, and, and on that one day, the day of atonement, he came, the high priest, as he would enter into it out of duty and obligation to the position that he held, he would enter with caution, much trepidation, much fear, because his life was in jeopardy every single time that he would go on the other side of that veil. Three times, one time a year. In fact, <clears throat> we're told that he would go behind the 18-inch thick veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies only after much religious and ceremonial preparation. And when you read what that entailed, you know that it was a very laborious thing for him to do. And he would never enter into the, to the, to the Holy of Holies without the blood of the atonement sacrifice, but now, think about that. One man, one day of the year, with much laborious ceremonial and religious practice, only then, with great caution and great fear, would enter in, but now, because of the sacrifice that Jesus made, there is no veil of separation standing between us and God. Nothing standing between us and God. A God who created us. A God who loves us. A God who desires to have intimate relationship with us. And, the only, and only the sacrifice of Jesus, when we consider this, who perfectly did the will of God, could tear down that veil of separation, both literally and figuratively, and open up the way, as we see, into a heavenly sanctuary, the place where God, where Jesus now ministers for us. Not on an earthly tabernacle, but at a heavenly place. The very place where God dwells. And when we look at the Gospel messages, three out of the four Gospels record or accounts for us that when Jesus was on the cross when he was hanging there, pinned to that piece of wood with the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet, offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins, he spoke these last words and said, it is finished. Meaning the work that Jesus had been sent to do was done. And as a result, the sin debt that we owed had been paid in full. And with these final words, we're told that Jesus breathed his last breath. He committed his, spirits, his spirit into his Father's hands. And at that moment, we are told that the sky grew dark. Not because the sun had set. But the, dark, the light disappeared. The sky grew dark. The earth quaked and shaked. 
and the rocks in the land were split in two. And that 18-inch thick veil of separation, we're told, that was within the temple was torn down from the top to the bottom. And this dramatic act by the very hand of God testifies to us that there is now no barrier that stands between us and Him. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone else rob you from drawing near, coming into His presence with boldness. And the bottom line is when Jesus offered up His body, we, as verse 20 points out right here, look at it, it says that we are given a new and living way to come into the presence of God. A new and living way to come into the presence of God. A way of life. Because we have a living priest who lives forevermore to make intercession for us. So now that we have Jesus, our high priest, ministering over the very house of God for us, who has made a way for us to enter in, the question that must be asked, the question that should be asked is, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Or better yet, what should we do? What should we be doing with that? And in light of this, we see that the verses that follow, verses 22 on through 25, it puts forth really, I would say, I would call them invitations. Three invitations. And each of them begins with this word, let us. I emphasize them when I am reading. Look with me, if you will. Verse 22, it says here, let us draw near. Verse 23, it says, let us hold fast. And in verse 24, it says, let us consider one another. And the thing to keep in mind is that these three, these, these three invitations, they hinge on us. The, 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 the point in which this all swings, right? The hinging point of the door is as verse 19 says, they hinge on us having the boldness to enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. That should be, a, for me, that's a mind-blowing thought to enter into the presence of God. Literally, guys, one day we will be there physically, face-to-face. But today we come to Him in spirit, in heart, in thought, in prayer, in submission. We have access to call upon God the Father, the Creator of all things, all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient, everywhere to be all at once, for our needs, in our times of needs. And it's worth pointing out that this is stated as a fact. Hear this. It's not just an encouragement. Oh, I hope you would just really come to Him in boldness. It's stated as a fact that we come to Him boldly, meaning we have access for a bold approach to God. The door's not locked. The door's open. And the first point of application is simply telling us that because Jesus has opened the way for God, for us, we should take advantage of it and draw near to God with a true heart and full of assurance and faith. When you came into the church this morning, hopefully someone was there to greet you, to open the door, to invite you in. And you smelled the coffee and the bagels and you heard the people and, 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 and you drew near, you came in. How foolish would it be to come all the way here, have the door open and the greeter say, hey, come on in, draw near. And you go, nah, I think I'm just gonna stand out here for a while. You see the imagery there and what that means? The blessing is, is, in coming here is being here. Join the air conditioning. Having the free coffee, the fruit, the bagels, the smiling faces, your friends, your, your, your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Meeting with God and worshiping Him and hearing the Word be taught and God speaking to your heart and your soul. And none of that happens unless we 
enter in, draw near. And so this first point of application is simply telling us again that because Jesus has opened the way to God for us, we should take advantage of it. And here, draw near to God with a true heart and full of assurance. And listen, think about it. This encouragement, I love that the Bible doesn't just, the Bible's not small talk, okay? The reason why things are written is because there's a purpose for it. And the purpose for this is, is we would not be given this encouragement unless it was necessary for us to be encouraged to do this, right? And so the question to ask, and questions to ask are this. Are we taking advantage of this privilege? It is a privilege. It's an honor. It's a blessing that God's provided through His Son, Jesus Christ. Are we taking advantage of it? In other words, the veil's been torn, a door's been opened, so use it. It's that simple. Use it. And when you come to God, do so, He says, come in full assurance of faith. What does that mean? You don't have to doubt. You don't have to have fear. You can know, we can know that we're welcomed and accepted. Welcome and accepted. Meaning we can now go to God and enter in his prison, into His presence without any kind of laborious works, with no religious, with no ceremonial things. Not how you dress, not what you eat, not what you do or don't do, whether you have sinned this week or this morning or any of that. You can come to Him without any laborious works, without any fear of reproach because we put our trust in the work of, of Jesus. We put our trust in the work that Jesus did to perfect us in regards to our positional standing with God. It hinges on Him and the work that He's done. The perfect work by the perfect man. And the thing I want to point out is in regard to drawing near, please hear this. It's something that we shouldn't take lightly because there's always an opposite if we're not doing this, then we're doing that, right? If we're not drawing near, then what are we doing? And I would suggest to you this morning that the opposite of that, of not drawing near, is drifting away. How long would you just stand outside of those doors and not come in before you just went away? If we're not drawing near, we're drifting away. And this is never a good thing. Asaph in Psalm 73 wrote, about this in verse 27 through 28, and he tells of the dangers of not entering. And he says, For indeed, those who are afar from you shall perish. He says, You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, speaking about spiritual idolatry, where there's a decision or a choice to be made, whether drawn near to God or I'm walking or drifting away from God. But he says, it's good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all of your works. The second point of application is this. Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And, and when you look at this on the surface, and, and it's a call to be steadfast and to continue in on, continue on in the faith that we put in Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus, whether it's your very first day of doing so, or maybe it's your 50th year of doing so, the message is still the same. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, let us, because there's a way that's made available to us, to the very presence of God, let us 
Hold fast the confession of our hope with, without wavering. Let us continue on in our faith that we have put in Jesus. And we need to consider that in, the, in regards to the specific contextual application of what we're reading here in the, in the book of Hebrews as it was written to an original group of people, it had to do with them, these Hebrew believers, of not forsaking Christ, not leaving Christianity, and going back to Judaism. He says, hold fast. Continue as you've begun. And we know that this encouragement was given in the face of much persecution and much discouragement as these early Hebrew believers were, were facing hard things. But the general meaning as it looks to our lives, which is more applicable to us, simply has to do with not going back to what it is that God is, whatever it is that God has saved you from. Do you remember that? Your sinfulness, your wretchedness, your rebelliousness, whatever it is in the world that you would give your love, your affection, your hope, your faith, your trust to, these things that God delivered us from. And, you know, and going back to these things that we used to put our hope in is going to look a little bit different for each of us. We all have a, 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 a different testimony in the sense that this is where I was, I met Jesus, and now this is who I am. But the basic idea is the same in that we have now put our hope in Jesus and we should, here's the word, wholly continue in Him. Because unlike all those other things that we used to put our hope in, in, the, in that they were unfaithful to the promises that they made us, and they did, they made promises to us, guys. But they were like a hologram. And when we reached out to grab them, they were empty. And as a matter of fact, not only did they, they, they not give us what it promised, it ended up robbing us of the very things that we were looking for. But, but yet, we know that Jesus is faithful. Here, He's faithful to keep the promises that He's made to us. And this whole idea of doing this without wavering, I think it's very notable because the fact of the matter is, is we're typically not going to waver during those times when everything is going just the way that we want, Right? When you're on cloud nine, when you're on top of the world, when you have no trial, when you have no tribulation, when life just seems to be going great, and you're on the mountaintop, and you're like, yes, Jesus is the best. I will follow you all the days of my life. Typically, we don't waver in our hope during those times. Rather, if you're like me, the wavering or the doubting usually occurs when things get hard. God, don't you see what I'm going through? How can you allow for this? What have I done? You know, doubting when trials are faced. This is so hard. Or when opposition is met. God, I know you said to do this and do it this way or go there and, and do that, but, but God, how come it's so hard? Why is there so much opposition, doubting and wavering in our hope and in our faith when circumstances aren't lining up with what we expect? Yet, guys, hear this. These are the very times that we need to not waver in our heart because Jesus, who is faithful, is the only one that can sustain us during these times. What else are we going to go to? Who else are we going to turn to? And to walk by faith, which is a very religious statement, you know? What does that mean? Coming to Jesus, because the way to sustain or to be sustained in this thing is by actively choosing to walk in faith in those moments when, when we can't see with our eyes what God is going to do in regards to fulfilling His promises for us. 
But what does that mean? What does that mean to walk by faith? And I'm here to tell you this morning that I suggest that it means to claim the promises of God in spite of what might be happening. God, I know this is what's going on, but you have said this. Your word has promised me that. You have told me that in the future this is going to happen. We lay hold and claim the promises of God. And in addition to that, we obey God's word. Even though we may think there's a different path that we can go down to make our circumstances, our situation better, we adhere to what God's word says, and that is walking by faith. You see, ultimately, it means that we obey God's word and claim the promises of God in spite of what we see, in spite of, what of, of how we feel, or in spite of what even may happen. It means committing ourselves to the will of God and completely relying, relying on Him to meet our needs in our times of need. Now, the third point of application, as I read it here in verse 25, is let us consider not one another. And even though it's probably obvious, I want to say that, that because of the, the, the culture that we live in and this world that we live in and, and, and this, this, this kind of thinking has crept even into the church sadly today, I want to point out that, that this let us consider one another is, the context, is in the context of giving and not getting. We live in this entitlement mentality where it's like, yeah, let us consider one another as you consider me and look at the needs that I have. Even in the church today, I think we've adopted maybe perhaps this, this Burger King slogan of you can have it your way. All about you. And it's not. That's not what we're, com- we're, we're, we're invited to do. Let us consider one another in the aspect of giving and not getting in order to stir up love and good works. And this is because our fellowship with God and with one another must never become selfish. And it can easily do so. We're selfish and self-centered people by nature. It's something we have to guard our hearts against. And the addendum to this point of the application is seen here in verse 25. And it is the specific encouragement to not forsake the assembling together of ourselves with other believers as it is closely tied to night wavering because one of the temptations is to break fellowship with other believers when we're wavering in our hope. We want to isolate. The enemy wants to isolate us. He wants to separate us. He wants to discourage us. Yet, when we gather, we do so for several reasons. And, and yeah, there's an aspect of gathering where there is a receiving. And it's not bad in and of itself because, you know, when I come to church here to meet with you guys and to meet with God, first and foremost, I want to get something from God. I want to hear revelation. I want Him to speak to my heart and my mind, to the circumstance of my life, to encourage me, to rebuke me, to correct me, to instruct me, to give me hope. I expect to receive something from God when I come here. But I tell you this, I also expect to give something to God. My love, my adoration, my worship, my affection, my presence. Furthermore, when we gather together, it's to encourage each other by our shared faith and values to bless one another and to work together for the building of God's kingdom. So fellowship with other believers is a needful thing, especially when hard times come, guys, because God uses us in each other's lives to strengthen us and encourage one another when times are hard. Listen, 
There's two undeniable truths that you can walk away with from Scripture. More than that, but I want to point you to two. I think they're foundational for so many of the other things. God's created us with a dependency. God is the giver of life and the sustainer of life, and we as a created being cannot have life apart from the creator and giver of life. And so therefore, we are inherently dependent upon Him. Dependent. He's created us that way. And in the same thought process, He's created us with the same kind of dependency as far as an interdependency upon one another as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters, as family members of God. In order that we might stir up love and good works in one another, in order that the fruit of the Spirit might be manifested in our lives, and so that we may be built up as a body, that there might be edification that takes place within God's kingdom. We have, a, we have a ministry here that we don't talk about a lot. It's a chaplaincy ministry. And uh, we've had the awesome privilege of being uh, placing, placing men from this church as chaplains in the fire department, in the sheriff's department, in the police department, Kennedy City Police Department, and in the Florence Police Department, as well as Fremont Regional Hospice. And I tell you that because one of the, the foundational principles, if not the foundation principle of chaplaincy ministry is this. If you ask any one of those guys, what is the foundation for the ministry, you'll say, he'll say, it's a ministry of presence. It's a ministry of presence. And how can we be those people who minister love and good works to one another if we're not present? And present isn't just walking through that door and sitting in these chairs. It's about actively in seeking relationship with those around you in order to stir up love and good works. Now think about the importance of this because this is something we speak about a lot. But it's this lettuce, this invitation to do this, it's one of these invitations that hinges upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ making a way available to us to God. Let us draw near. Let us do so with all faith and confidence. And let us, he says, consider one another. It's on the same playing field as entering into the presence of God. And I think in that, when we look at that, we see the value and importance of it that we don't often place on Christian fellowship, true brotherly and sisterly fellowship that God says here to be in fellowship with each other as we watch, he says, and see the day of Jesus returning. And I believe that that statement there is intended to be motivation for us to faithfully do these things because it is a reminder for us that when Jesus returns, we who are the servants of God, we who are the children of God, we're going to be called to give an account for our love and our good works. Not for our sin. That's been paid for. There's no judgment for sin that remains for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Paid for in full. Settled. Done. But in order to, but in regards to the, this aspect of, of love and good works, there is going to be an account. And, and it reminds me of the parable of the talents where Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God, teaching about the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 25 tells us a story about several servants who were given a different amounts of his mass of his of their master's wealth as the master went away and 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 most of these men 
invested what had been entrusted to them and brought a return on the investment, and that was what was expected of the master. Yet we know that there was one servant who did not. He did not do what the master had intended while he was gone with what had been entrusted to him. But the ones who did what was expected, when the master returned, if you remember, there was this praise. Matthew chapter 25, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We as believers speak all the time about longing to hear those words spoken to us upon our Savior's return. So let us, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good work. So as we wrap this section of Scripture up, we should notice that the underlying theme of these points of application are rooted in three familiar virtues. I want to connect these dots for you. In verse 22, if you look and see, it's about faith. In verse 23, it's about hope. And in verse 24, it's about love. Faith, hope, and love. And I point this out because these virtues are evidences of our fellowship with God. It's the fruit of our relationship with God. If you are in right relationship with God, if you're drawing near to God, these will be manifested in your life. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, abide now in faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And so when we take up residence, we should remember the passage in John where it talks about Jesus being the vine and and we be in the branches, and there's no life in us apart from the branch, the branch from the, the, the uh, uh, vine and, and how we're called to abide, to take up residence, right? And so when we take up residence with Jesus and accept Him as our Savior, accept the sacrifice that He has made for us, listen, we, when we do that, we will dwell with full assurance of God by faith. We'll have confidence. We'll have assurance. We'll go, it's not about me, it's about Jesus, and look what he's done. Furthermore, there will be no wavering hope as we put our trust in his promises. Not in the promises of the world, not in the works of our own flesh, but in the promises that he's made to us. We will have hope. There will be no wavering hope because we'll trust in his promises. And lastly, Guys, when we take up residence with Jesus and accept His sacrifice and receive Him as our Savior, we will possess a godly, selfless love that is demonstrated by esteeming others higher than we esteem ourselves. Now as we continue on in verse 26, we see that these verses which contain a warning for the concluding thought about Jesus being a better priest and an encouragement of the assurance of our salvation. And the transition in, in, in this, this warning is really the transition into the conclusion of the letter, chapters 11 through 15. So here we go with the transitional verses in verse 26. For if we sin willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which devour which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose? 
Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When we began the book of Hebrews, and I was outlining it, if you remember, I pointed out that within the book of Hebrews, there's five warnings given to us. Five warnings. And in these verses, we read the fourth of these five warnings. And the thing to remember as we study through this warning now is that it had been written to believers. This is not to non-believers. These are believers in Christ. And it follows in sequence, contextually speaking, it follows in the sequence with the other three warnings that have already been given to us that we've previously read about. And when we stack them all together and look at them as a whole, what we see the warning is really describing and speaking about is about a spiritual regression. Okay? And where one person was here and over time they came to this place. It's not speaking about the act of being a sinner or even struggling with sin. I want to make that very clear. And I want to expand on that a little bit. In other words, the first warning given back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, please follow this. It was a warning for us to not drift away from the Word of God. Because when we drift away from the Word of God, then there is a doubting of the Word of God that takes place. We see that even how Adam and Eve was, Eve was deceived by Satan in the garden. She doubted when, when the enemy, when she drifted away from God, the Word, and he said, Satan said to her, did God not say? Well, maybe. Start doubting the Word of God. When you drift away from the Word of God, you begin to doubt the Word of God. The second warning in chapter 3, verse 7, that continues on through chapter 4, verse 13, there was this warning that was told that the believer who drifts from God's Word, who then begins to doubt God's Word, will ultimately become dull to guard towards God's Word. There will be a hardening that takes place. And then in chapter 5, verse 11, on through chapter 6, verse 20, this is where the third warning is. And it's a warning about being spiritually lazy, about having apathy in our walk, spiritually speaking, and not progressing or growing in our faith, which ultimately will result in a spiritual black back, black side. Backsiding. Yeah, it's a hard word to get out for some reason. So as we follow now the sequence of these warnings, right? In light of this fourth warning, we see that we're now being warned to the fact that the end result of drifting, which leads to doubting, which leads to dullness, which leads to spiritual laziness, will ultimately lead to a despising and a turning away from the Word. The spiritual regression. We must see how this warning is a concluding thought. Let's again look at it the context. It's given now as a concluding thought to the argument of Jesus being the superior high priest who is far superior in every way to the priests of the Old Covenant because it points out the fact that, hear this, that there's a choice or a decision that ultimately must be made. With the information, there's a choice and a decision that must be made that we're confronted with when we receive the information regarding who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, 
What Jesus is now doing, remember the Hebrew believers, for them, this letter was originally written to, were being tempted to go back to Judaism and perhaps even to begin to go back to some aspects of Judaism where they were mixing Judaism and Christianity together where they're saying, yeah, it's grace, it's the grace of God and in Jesus on the cross, but, but also I have to maintain or sustain my holiness by these things that I can do. And this letter was written to encourage them to not go back to any of those things because Jesus in the new covenant is a better way. It's a far superior way than anything that Judaism ever had to offer or in our case, that anything that we think we can bring to the table apart from the work of Jesus Christ. But if these Hebrew believers were heading down if these Hebrew believers who were heading down a dangerous path, a dangerous path, if they continued to do so, they, as verse 26 declared here, listen, it puts it very clearly, they would be sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And the fact of the matter is, is if they did this, then there would no longer be a sacrifice for their sins, meaning the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And they, as verse 27 states, would be facing a certain and fearful expectation of judgment. It's clear when we look at this warning in the context of what we see here, we see that this warning is not against backsliding, which something is that something that all of us has done. And if you've not done it yet, you probably will do. I pray that you don't. It's, it's not a good thing, but that's in our human nature. And it can be from a day-to-day basis. Rather, what we see that this warning is against turning our back on what Jesus did on our behalf and rejecting him as our Lord and Savior and thinking we can come to God and be accepted by some other way, by some other work or by some other sacrifice or offering apart from the one that Jesus made. So in light of the fact that all remains is this expectation of judgment for the person who turns their back on God, on the way that God has provided by the work that Jesus has done and the sacrifice that Jesus has made, we see this warning continues in verse 31 with another comparison from the new to the old, right? To the old covenant and the laws of Moses in order to point out that it's really not an unreasonable thing for us to expect a judgment for rejecting Jesus. For anyone who rejects Jesus, it's not an unreasonable thing for them to expect judgment. Because even when the law, even when it came to the law of Moses, if a person was to reject it, then they would also be judged. It says that they would die without mercy for rejecting God's way, God's plan. And so if God was this serious about the old covenant being broken, then as verse 29 points out, how much more worse of a punishment do you suppose a person is worthy of if they trample the Son of God by rejecting the offering He made with His blood and insulting the Spirit of grace, meaning specifically the Holy Spirit. Why is that said? Because the Holy Spirit is the one that testifies to us of who Jesus is. It testifies to, testifies to us of the love of God and the grace of God and testifies to us of the work that God did to save us. And even though this is a rhetorical question, something for us to think about, the, obvious is question, the, the, the answer to the question is obvious. Here's the reason why. Because Jesus, the Son of God and the sacrifice that He made, is He not much more valuable and precious than the law of Moses? Imagine, as verse 31 states, falling into the hands of the living God on the day of judgment, leaving this life, standing before Him, and saying to Him, the way that You made for me to be accepted by You, it wasn't the best. 
I had a better way. Imagine imagine saying what your son did wasn't enough. That I needed to add to the work that he did. It wasn't enough. Guys, this would truly be a fearful thing. But in the same manner, having accepted the way that He provided, having accepted Jesus' sacrifice, and then falling into the hands of the living God, guys, this is a comforting thing. This is a wonderful thing. And the thing about warnings, all warnings, especially ones like this, they will do one of two things. They can either intimidate us or they can invite us. And this morning, this, inv- this warning is to be an invitation. It's not to be intimidating. Think about it like this. If you were to go to the beach with your kids or your grandkids, and there as you walked onto the beach was this big sign that said, warning, heavy surf. We would probably be worried about keeping our kids out of the water, right? We want them to be snatched out and drowned by the waves. However, if you were a surfer, and you came to that same beach, and you saw that sign, today, warning, heavy surf, you'd be like, right on, man! And you couldn't wait to get into that water. You'd be excited, not intimidating. And you would see the sign as an invitation. Well, this is what I mean. The same thing holds true with us in regards to this warning. And for us who have put our faith in Jesus and have accepted the way that God has made for our salvation, and we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and accepted the sacrifice that He's made for us, listen, this warning about sinning and willfully rejecting Jesus and the expectation of a judgment that is, that is to come as a result should not be seen as an intimidating thing. Rather, it's an inviting thing. So what is it inviting us to? Listen, it's an invitation to not go back to self-efforts. It's an invitation to not go back to self-efforts. It's an invitation to not turn to religious things. It's an invitation to not turn to any other thing in this futile attempt of our own to earn God's favor. Furthermore, it's an invitation for us to remember what God has done for us, to celebrate, to remember and to celebrate God's gift of salvation that we've received, and to remember that the certain judgment that we were once headed for is no longer our destination. That's the invitation. And and the verses that follow points out the fact that this warning was an invitation also for these Hebrew believers to continue into their faith and to not draw back to the wasteful things, things of perdition. If the worship team wants to come up, we'll close with this. Verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, when God had made Himself known to you, when you received Him as your Lord and Savior, and the sacrifice that He had made from your sins, for your sins, He said this, Remember that you endured a great struggle with suffering, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. He said, For you even had compassion on Me and My chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul when he thinks about this. He says, I count it all loss for the joy that is laid up for me. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while 
A little while is all that it is, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now, here's the, here's the, the final thought of instruction, of application, guys. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, to wastefulness, but of those who believe to the saving of our souls. Guys, the cool thing about these verses is that God is calling the reader to look back and to remember what they've already walked with God through. What they had already gone through in the name of Jesus in that they had already sacrificed much and even suffered for the name of Jesus. And certainly this would have been the case for these Jewish believers. It's very common at this time to leave Judaism and turn to Christianity meant that you were completely um, disowned by your family. And the point of this was to give assurance to these believers and remind them that their proof, that, that there was proof in their lives that they were truly born again, that they'd become new creations, that they had been changed, they'd already received this awesome blessing through their faith in Christ. And they, like us, are among those who had put their faith in Christ, and we, who are justified by faith, shall continue to live by faith. And so, Father, I pray, God, that you would do that good work in us this morning again of, Lord, of shoring up our faith in you, Lord, of growing our faith in you, of showing us of how to live and walk in faith in you, Lord, that we would not turn to the right or to the left, that our face would ever be before you, Lord, and that you would guide us and lead us as we wait for your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you guys stand?